This episode of Obscure Ball contains descriptions of sexual abuse that some listeners may find disturbing and or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. Newlands at second base. Moss at first. 2-1 count on Mel Hall. 2-2 delivery. When Mel Hall trotted around the bases on Memorial Day 1991, he had to feel like he was on top of the world. With the Yankees trailing the Red Sox 5-3 in the bottom of the ninth inning, the hard-swinging left-hander had just smashed a walk-off three-run homer to give New York the 6-5 win over their sworn enemies. It was his second home run of the day and the pinnacle of an otherwise forgettable career. To paint you a picture here, the crowd is going bananas. His teammates are greeting him at home plate like a hero. I mean, he had to feel like a million bucks in that moment. It was possibly even the greatest moment of his life. June 17th, 2009, by contrast, would probably have to be the worst. In a courtroom in Tarrant County, Texas, Hall was sentenced to 45 years in prison for sexually assaulting two underage girls. It capped off a bizarre and twisted story involving one of the most devious, duplicit men ever to play professional baseball. And that story is next. But first, here's a quick plug. Okay, I'll keep this one brief. For more information on how Small League Productions can help you make a handcrafted podcast, visit smallleaguestew.com or just click on the link in the description. There's more information and details on the website. Okay, on to this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called Hall of Shame. An athlete, an animal trainer, and an ambassador of goodwill from the world of testosterone. Mel Hall Jr., the Rebel Yankee. This week's Yankeeography. In the world of sports, there's a pretty common story. It's one where a player fails to live up to all the hype from the media, fans, or whoever. There's a lot of reasons this could happen. Injuries, burnout, drugs, or they're actually pretty good, but maybe not quite the deity everyone said they would be. Now, usually these players are either forgotten about or their names are only uttered after the phrase, what if, which some would argue is the saddest phrase in the human vocabulary. But the story of Mel Hall is not a common one. At least I hope not anyway. You might even say he belongs in a category unto himself. Yes, he was once a star athlete with great expectations. And yeah, he never really came close to living up to his potential. Also, if that mockumentary clip I just played for you is any indication, no one really took him all that seriously for a long time. But unlike players relegated to Bleacher Report list or 30 for 30 documentaries, Hall's story arc was different. In 2009, 31 years after the Chicago Cubs drafted him in the second round of the MLB draft, Hall was sentenced to 45 years in prison for a series of heinous crimes that left a trail of misery and destruction in its wake. 
Now, when I first began my research on this, I wasn't quite sure how to frame the story. On one hand, I felt like it was pretty unfair to make this whole story center around a serial abuser like Mel Hall. But on the other, I do think it's kind of necessary to do a bit of a character profile on him. So we'll just go ahead and do that part now. From his humble beginnings, Mel Hall very outwardly accomplished the nearly impossible. Born in the small farming town of Montezuma, New York, Hall was subjected to poverty as a child. But like with so many other people, sports provided an escape of sorts. As a youngster, he was pretty good in football, basketball, and really excelled at baseball. The latter, of course, proving to be his ticket out. Like I said, in 1978, he was a second round draft pick by the Cubs, which at first seemed like a pretty good move for Chicago. A big left-hander with a ton of athletic ability, Hall slugged his way through the minor leagues, smashing 32 home runs for the Iowa Cubs in 1982, the AA affiliate for the big league club. Which, if you aren't aware, AA is kind of considered to be a litmus test. If a player can do well there, that's when you know he's legit. In fact, even before that, he got his first taste of the majors in 81 and hit his first big league homer as a 20-year-old. And by 83, Hall was a regular feature in the Cubs lineup, playing mostly in center field while clobbering 17 home runs. Pair that with a 283 batting average and solid defense, he finished third in the National League Rookie of the Year voting, ultimately losing out to a guy named Daryl Strawberry. Despite his potential, the Cubs traded Hall midway through the 84 season to the Cleveland Indians, where he put up some okay numbers, playing reasonably well in 86 and 87, swatting 18 home runs both seasons, with decent batting averages and OPS and all that jazz. Hall also continued his defensive prowess when he finished 87 with the best fielding percentage and range factor among all left fielders in the whole league. So like I said, not bad. But not bad was about as good as Mel Hall ever got at professional baseball. And his personal life, as I've already alluded to, was never even close to not bad. Now that brings us to the next part of the story. Before the 89 season, Cleveland traded him to the Yankees, which on paper seems like the ultimate baseball dream, right? I mean, we're talking about the New York Yankees here. Ruth, Garrick, DiMaggio, Mantle, Reggie Jackson. This is an institution. But here's the thing. The Yankees sucked in 1989. They lost 87 games that year, finishing 5th in the AL East. It was also the first of four consecutive losing seasons, wherein George Steinbrenner fired and hired like four different managers. So, to say the least, things weren't awesome in the Bronx. So, in comes Mel Hall, this free-swinging left-hander with a big personality, and I guess you could say a palpable enough skill set. So, for a short period of time, he was an okay fit for a struggling team with not-so-high expectations. I mean, at the very least, he was a fan favorite. He was kind of a caricature, and he even sort of played that aspect up. You know, he knew that there was like kind of something humorous about what he was doing, uh, you know, about, about just the way he acted. And I think, I think that was a way that he gravitated, that he sought fame was by kind of pursuing this archetype, you know, of this kind of like larger-than-life, egomaniacal superstar. And he kind of knew that, you know, that the media would, would think it was funny. That's Greg Hanlon. He's an editor for People Magazine, focusing mainly on true crime, though he does some freelance writing here and there as well. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Sports on Earth, 
Slate, The Classical, and SB Nation, just to name a few. And one of those writing gigs was a long-form piece he did for SB Nation in 2014 called The Many Crimes of Mel Hall, which I read at the time and the piece has stuck with me all these years later. So I decided to reach out via email, and he was kind enough to speak with me. And like all other people on planet Earth right now during COVID, we connected via a Zoom call. We briefly bonded over Bull Durham and joked how Mel Hall kind of seems like a character from a baseball film. The big swing, the slow home run trot, the massive ego, punctuated with a multi-million dollar contract and mediocre skills to boot, made Hall into, like Greg said, a caricature of sorts. He had 15 sports cars, but still took a limo to Yankee Stadium. He also had these German shepherds that were trained to attack people, and perhaps most astonishingly, he had two pet mountain lion cubs that, for some unknown reason, he brought to Yankee Stadium one day. He was fined by authorities for that stunt. A similar incident occurred when he decided to brandish his handguns during a media interview. His nightlife became an entity unto itself, with sordid tells about his nights out on the town, spending money and chasing women. Things got to the point where he had to spend $1,400 a night for the services of a bodyguard named Jimmy McMillan, who the internet best remembers as the obscure candidate for New York governor who delivered the famous line, I represent the rent is too damn high party. Yeah, that's the guy. I think they even made that into an auto-tune or something. But anyway, it was an amusing exercise to create a character profile for Hall. At least at first, anyway. We quickly shifted gears into the many crimes of Mel Hall. And that's where the fun part ended. It's not an easy thing to discuss, but Greg and I agreed, it's necessary. And I'll again warn the listeners, this is where things start getting pretty dark. I had done a story on this guy that played for the the football player that played for the Giants back when I was a kid named Dave Meggett. I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he mm-hmm. was like a, he's really good. He was like a, a spunky, like little, you know, third down back uh, kick return specialist. And, and I knew that sort of vaguely knew that I had seen news stories that he had like gotten in trouble and that he had, you know, sort of, you know, that his, that his life had took a turn for, for the worse, but I didn't, didn't really process what, you know, what exactly happened. And then I went back just Googling it and it turned out that, that he was a, a serial rapist. Megat is currently serving a 30 year prison sentence, by the way. And when I found that out, I was, I was sort of disappointed in my own kind of passive, you know, the way I had processed what happened to Dave Megat. I, I sort of knew that he, you know, that he screwed something up, that he, you know, that he, that he messed up his life, but that didn't begin to speak on the amount of horror that he inflicted on other people and, and just how destructive and kind of evil a person he was. Which brings us back to Mel Hall, because in no sense was being a self-absorbed, underachieving ball player the worst thing he ever did. Make no mistake, this man was an abuser who systematically preyed on underage girls, using his status as a professional ball player to lure them in. As I went back and reread Greg's story, the term that kept coming to mind, aside from maybe sick, perverted, or twisted, was Machiavellian. Mel Hall was a conniving, manipulative person who employed Machiavellian-like tactics just to gain control over people. He didn't just abuse these girls, he charmed his way into their families' lives. Case in point, June 11, 1989. The fans at Yankee Stadium had piled in for a doubleheader between the Red Sox and Yankees. New York took both games, 4-2 and 8-7 respectively. Hall started both games in right field, 
and managed to go a combined 0 for 6 with a pair of sacrifice RBIs on the day. Not really a great day at the plate. He was probably distracted by the group of girls in the right field bleachers that he'd been flirting with. One of those girls was 15-year-old Jennifer Diaz. She was there with a group of friends and their father when she met the then 28-year-old Hall. And by the way, in the interest of privacy and safety, all the names of Hall's victims and their families have been changed. From her spot in the right field bleachers, she and Hall had developed some sort of a dynamic. Between innings, he would either throw or pretend to throw foul balls to them. And on the surface, it probably seemed like he was just being a fun-loving player, true to his public persona. The truth was much darker. Hall would spend the next few years manipulating and abusing Jennifer along with her whole family. About two weeks after that day at Yankee Stadium, Jennifer and her friends, just kind of as a joke basically, decide to write some fan mail to Yankee Stadium and address it to Mel Hall. Hall gets the letter and is flattered. Now, any responsible adult at this point would think, hey, these are teenage girls, I'm not even going to respond. Hall was not a responsible adult. Soon after getting the letter, he sneaks into the clubhouse during a game and calls the Diaz family. Their lives would be changed forever. They were working class people and, and huge Yankee fans. And I think kind of one of the, one of the sort of constants with the, with the uh, victims in the story is that the culture that they came from just like completely overemphasized sports. And, and Hall was very adept at exploiting that and in, you know, making, I mean, to us, it's Mel Hall. It's a, it, we think Mel Hall, we think he's kind of a, a scrub, but there is a type of person and a type of situation and a type of family where that, the connection to the New York Yankees, to the major leagues it is just so incredibly, you know, meaningful. And I think with the, with the Diaz family, it was very adept in sniffing that out. And there's that scene, you know, kind of at the beginning where they're all, you know, the dad, the mom, the, the grandfather, who was a huge Yankee fan, they're all crowding around the TV waiting to see if Mel Hall is going to kind of acknowledge them from Mount Olympus. And when he does that thing with the bat, where he told Jennifer that he was going to acknowledge her by tapping his bat on the plate three times and that if he did that 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 would be his signal that he you know that he was acknowledging her because she didn't because uh, he called her from the clubhouse and she didn't believe that it was that it was in fact you know Mel Hall this guy in the Yankees and so to you know to reassure her that he was you know who, who he said he was he said he was going to tap his bat on the on home plate three times you know as a signal to her and she told her family that, you know, that, that Mel Hall had, had told her this. So they're all gathered around watching the Yankee game. And he does you know, what he had promised to do. He taps his bat three times and then he takes his bat and he points it at the center field camera towards her. And the way she described it in the story was the family was, was ecstatic. So ecstatic that when Hall invited them to Yankee Stadium the next day, the whole family, mom, dad, grandpa, and of course, Jennifer came along, excited to meet this subpar outfielder with an outsized ego. They were so ecstatic, they didn't intervene when Mel Hall, a grown-ass man of nearly 30, began dating 15-year-old Jennifer. Hall basically bought his way into their lives, buying cars for the parents and Jennifer, paying for a backyard pool, and tickets to every Yankee home game. He'd even sent a limo to pick them up. The catch being that Jennifer was required to be at every game 
And with their parents always there, as Greg put it, it gave them cover. I mean, think about it. If in the eyes of the public, her parents are okay with it, there must be no harm. But this was all just part of his plan, and a rather sadistic form of abuse, if you ask me. Hall promised the family to wait until Jennifer was 18 before having sex, which was a lie because he had sex with her anyway. And he told her it was fine because he planned to marry her when she was 18. Spoiler alert, they never got married. But they were, quote-unquote, together for three years. He even moved into their house. A pro baseball player moved into the suburbs of Connecticut to be with his teenage girlfriend. I mean, this is weird stuff. At first, he slept on the couch, but eventually he moved into the master bedroom with Jennifer, and her parents were relegated to Jennifer's old room. And that was the power discrepancy. I mean, he was a god in that household. And, and just by acknowledging Jennifer, it, it, it made the whole family feel special. So this strange arrangement goes on for the better part of three years, until things came to a head in 1992. That year marked two turning points. For Jennifer, it marked the end of her relationship with Hall. That relationship had grown pretty sour, with Hall abusing her sexually, verbally, and emotionally. Tired of his controlling ways and suspecting that he was cheating, she told him to a hotel one night and caught him in the act. The 17-year-old finally did what her parents couldn't. She ended things with Hall. From that point, her road to recovery was difficult and long. But she'd later testify against Hall in a trial that put him away for 45 years. It was also the end of the road for Hall and the Yankees. They'd actually been trying to trade him since about 1990, but no team in the league wanted him. As time went on, he became a toxic presence in the clubhouse, throwing temper tantrums when he'd get benched and bullying players he saw as a threat to his playing time. One of their most promising young players is Bernie Williams, and Hall sensing a threat to you know, both his, his position in the outfield, but I think also just kind of sensing the, the new guard is, is coming in. Hall just mercilessly, like, verbally abuses Bernie and just shits on him the whole time he's there. And management has to intercede on, on Bernie's behalf and tell Hall, like, you know, like, back the fuck off. As part of that relentless hazing of Williams, Hall routinely berated him for no reason in front of the entire team, often screaming at him and calling him zero. Which is funny, because zero is exactly how many times Hall was an all-star. It's the number of World Series he won, or how many times he hit 20 home runs. Williams, by contrast, was a five-time all-star, four-time World Series champion, was a silver slugger in 02, and perhaps most notably, was never sentenced to prison for sexual assault. So who's the real zero? For all his awfulness, the breaking point with Hall came during Old Timers Day at Yankee Stadium in 92. I mean, guys like Yogi Berra and all these other legends show up. I mean, it's got to be a sight to behold. Unless, of course, you're Mel Hall. He comes onto the field, sees some of the greatest baseball players ever to play the sport, and says, who are, who are these old fucking guys? <laughs> His contract ended after the season, and the Yankees did not re-sign him. Actually, nobody in the league did. His major league career was effectively over. He spent the next three seasons in Japan where he actually played pretty well. Hall smashed 30 home runs in 93, playing for Chibalat. But even then, his power decreased over the next two seasons, and his big league comeback attempt with San Francisco in 96 was short-lived. He played just 25 games that year and left the team after refusing a pinch-hitting role. When all was said and done, 
his statistical contributions to the game are at best insignificant. Fast forward to 2009. By this point, Mel Hall hasn't played competitive baseball since 2002, which almost doesn't count because it was a pretty lame stint playing indie league ball. But that's the least of his problems. He's now facing multiple charges of sexual assault against minors in the state of Texas. And the evidence is pretty damning. All right, let's backtrack just a little bit. At some point in the late 90s, Hall moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area where he leveraged his status as an ex-ball player to gain the trust of the player's parents and then weaseled his way into their lives. Sound familiar? Eventually, he became an AAU basketball and softball coach, which not only gave him access to his victims, but it gave him a lever of control over their lives. Players who spurned his advances were often punished by being benched, often at the expense of not being seen by college coaches. For a time, he got away with it. By design, his victims were young and vulnerable. They were probably confused and devastated on the inside and didn't know how to process what happened. But here's the thing about kids. They eventually grow up and become adults. And while abuse victims might carry that burden with them, they also develop a better understanding of what happened. And in the case of Mel Hall, many of his victims happen to know each other. In 2007, two of his victims and previous players, who by then were adults in their mid-20s, had reconnected, compared notes, and decided it was time to report this guy to the cops. That's when the bottom fell out. The investigation uncovered victim after victim after victim. The evidence was enough to arrest Hall, and in 2009, he went to trial. It was a brief trial that saw few people speak out in Hall's defense, and at the advice of his counsel, he never even took the stand himself. It took the jury less than two hours to deliberate, and on June 16, 2009, he was convicted of three counts of aggravated sexual assault of a child and two counts of indecency with a child. For his crimes, he was sentenced to 45 years in prison and won't be eligible for parole until 2031. I should say, though, that it's not totally fair to say nobody ever spoke up in Hall's defense. Soon after the sentencing, a mysterious website called MelHallJr.com just surfaced. The site proclaimed to tell the truth about the case, essentially arguing that the trial didn't last long enough and that by only deliberating for 90 minutes, the jury had neglected their civic duty. The site was taken down after whoever was running it out of the name of one of the victims. A seriously egregious thing to do and under Texas law is a Class C misdemeanor. But I found screenshots of the site after digging around internet archives. And to say the least, it's pretty bizarre. It makes the case that it's Mel Hall who's the victim. It alleges that his accusers are simply gold diggers seeking fame and fortune, which is weird because they never filed a civil suit for money or anything like that. One page ostensibly makes the case that this could happen to anyone. It is a warning for all coaches, teachers, daycare providers, and volunteers who decide to teach our youth. It is a warning for all professional athletes alike. One page of the site reads, I found an email address and tried contacting them, you know, just to get their perspective. And really, I wanted to see after all these years if they still want to defend a man with so much damning evidence against him. But since the domain is no longer in use, the email was sent back. So I'm not quite certain who's responsible for the website, but in my opinion, there's one viable culprit. Her name is Elizabeth Hall. She married Hall in 2013 while he was already in prison. And to be fair, I can't say that I'm sure she made the website. 
but I do know for a fact that she contacted Greg while he was writing his story for SB Nation. He confirmed this to me in an email. She told him that the story needed to be about Mel, not the victims. Thankfully, Greg didn't comply with her request. And from this point, neither will I. I gave up on my search to contact Mrs. Hall, and from what I can tell, she's been reluctant to grant interviews anyway. Instead, I want to bring it back to the victims. Earlier in the episode, I said something to the effect of the saddest phrase in the human vocabulary is, what if? I think about those two words a lot with this story, but not so much about Mel Hall. He made his choices, and now he has to deal with the consequences. When I think about what if, I think more about the victims. What if Jennifer Diaz never went to Yankee Stadium? What if Mel Hall had never been hired as a youth coach? What if, during his years-long reign of terror, just one adult had stepped up and contacted the authorities? How different would their lives be? How much pain and suffering would have been spared? I'm glad these women told their stories to prosecutors and to Greg Hanlon. And I hope this story serves as a cautionary tale, not to young girls or women, but to men who would perpetrate such an abuse, to adults who ignore the warning signs, and to all of us who have blind spots when it comes to this kind of thing. The damage done to abuse victims is irreparable. Though according to Greg's reporting, the victims he spoke to have gone on to live productive and meaningful lives. Still, we all gotta do better, in my opinion. Well, that's it for this episode of Obscure Ball. A big thanks to Greg Hanlon for taking the time to speak to me and for his reporting on this story and others like it. If you'd like to read his story, it's linked in the description below. Also, for anyone listening who might be a victim of sexual assault, there's another link in the description to the National Sexual Online Hotline.